Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Good morning. So good to have you here. How many appreciated our worship time together than the follow-up comments by Pastor Tyler? So good to be in the house of the Lord. As we mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, last Sunday we started a brand new series entitled Summer on the Mount, which is a play on words for the absolutely amazing sermon Jesus preached recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And again, last week I mentioned to you that I have been in full-time ministry for 38 years, and in all that time I have never given a Sermon on the Mount series, and that's by design. You see, the content of the Sermon on the Mount can be controversial, and believe it or not, it's difficult to preach. And back in March, when the Spirit of the Lord began to lead me in this direction, I fought it. I did not want to take on this project. And I made that position clear to the Lord. But he refused to let me off the hook. So we're going after it this summer. And my advice to you is, buckle up. And keep your seatbelt on until the seatbelt sign has been turned off the last week in August. All right, today in lesson number two, we're going to look at the Beatitudes. Nine proverb-like sayings or blessings that Jesus presents at the beginning of his sermon. But just before we dive into the opening verses of Matthew chapter 5, I want to give you the backstory, And I'd like to begin in 336 BC with the rise of Alexander the Great. And even though he reigned as king for less than 12 years, Alexander the Great changed the course of human history. He was one of the world's greatest military generals. And after overthrowing the Persian Empire, the world power at that time, Alexander created a kingdom or an empire that stretched from Macedonia to Egypt and from Greece to India. I mean, it was a big territory. Unfortunately, his success went to his head. And in 323 BC, he proclaimed himself to be God. He just stood up in the front of the people one day and said, I'm God. And not long after that, he died a sudden and mysterious death at the youthful age of 32. And following his death, since Alexander the Great refused to name a successor, his empire was divided into uh, four different territories, uh, one territory each for four of his top generals. And over the next three centuries, a division of time known as the Hellenistic period, there was ongoing war and bloodshed. I mean, 300 years of intense war. And finally, in 31 BC, Augustus Caesar proclaimed himself to be king of Rome, and the Roman Empire was born. And as you well know, at that time, Rome ruled the world with an iron fist. And among God's people, the Roman brutality gave rise to the Jewish zealots. And zealots, you read about them in the Gospels, they were a political group 
that vehemently disagreed with the Roman rule of law. And they openly expressed their opposition with defiance and violence. And keep in mind, the zealots were deeply religious. They were extremely religious people. And at the time of Christ, the zealots had gained widespread popularity. And like everyone else, they were watching and waiting for Messiah to come. And because God is so faithful to always inform his people about what's happening, especially when he's doing something big, the entire Jewish community felt it. And they were convinced that, that, that at that time that the coming of Messiah was right around the corner. Now, for the past 600 years, every generation had been praying for Messiah. Every generation had been hoping for Messiah. But it was the fullness of time. And Jesus was already on the planet. Jesus the Messiah was walking around among them. And spiritual leaders like John the Baptist, a forerunner to Christ, those who were in tune with the Lord, they began to prepare the people. And the vast majority of them at that time believed that Messiah, when he showed up, would be just like King David or just like Alexander the Great, a brilliant military genius. That's what they were expecting from this Messiah. And that he would not only deliver them from Roman oppression, but he would completely conquer the Roman Empire and set up his own kingdom on earth. And so the stage was set for Jesus. And he started to interact and minister among the people. And the Gospel of Matthew records what was taking place just before Jesus prepared and then preached this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 4 Verses 23 through 25 tell us, and this is, again, Matthew chapter 4 comes before Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount starts Matthew chapter 5, so this is kind of like an introduction to the sermon. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all those who were ill with various diseases. They brought to him those who were suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those who were having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Okay, here we see, as Jesus is about to begin his sermon, a very diverse group of people are fo uh, they're following Jesus. And the scripture says crowds of people, plural, not just one crowd. Countless masses and multitudes of people, including, and we just read this, people from Galilee, or the shepherds and countryside Jews. Then there were people from the ten cities of Decapolis, they were the Romans. The Jerusalem Jews, or the religious elite, people from Judea or the law keepers, and finally the region across the Jordan or the east siders, those from the other side of the tracks. And all of these people, multitudes and masses of people are following Jesus because he has power. They're seeing it in action. He has power to heal the sick and to cleanse the lepers 
and to cast out demons. And as Jesus has started his earthly ministry and he's going from place to place and traveling the countryside, whispers about this Jesus that he could possibly be the Messiah begin to circulate among the crowds. And Jesus' very first assignment was to somehow try to convince them that they had interpreted the scriptures wrongly. That somehow they got off base and they weren't following the law that God had really passed along to them. It wasn't what God meant when he gave the law to Moses. They had come up with a whole new law of their own. All these different traditions and all of these different teachings. And Jesus was challenged to try to steer them in the right direction. And please understand, he was the lion from the tribe of Judah. He was going to be a leader from the royal lineage of David. He was going to rescue them and free them from their sins. But he was not going to be the military general they all thought he was. He wasn't going to be like that. They had a misconception of who this Messiah was was going to be. And Jesus came with a message. A message to change their attitudes and remove their hearts of stone, replacing them with hearts of flesh. Remember, he quoted from the prophet Isaiah, and he said, this people, referring to the Jewish people, they honor me, what? With their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Jesus didn't come with a sword like they thought he would. He came with a message to change their hearts. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's not a brand new teaching. It's not all of a sudden Jesus giving fresh revelation and truth. He came to correct the error of their ways. And he came to go after their hearts. How many know we look at this message today and nothing has changed? He's still very concerned about the hearts of his people. All right, let's begin reading Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And we're going to go through this slowly. I feel the need to give you this disclaimer. Expository teaching is really not my forte, but we're going to try to do this. Bear with me, okay? Chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. I please see with me that Jesus was teaching his disciples. He prepared these lessons... And he was uh, communicating truth to people who were following him. People who called him rabbi. But even though he prepared the message for his disciples, he wanted his disciples to hear what he had to say, he was also well, well aware of the other people in the crowd who were paying attention and those who were listening to him. And so his target audience is not just his disciples. He's talking to them, he's teaching them, But he also includes in his thoughts and in his prayers the Jewish zealots, the tax collectors, the teachers of the law, and everyone in between. And we know they were all listening because when you get to the end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7, recorded in verses 28 and 29, the Bible tells us when Jesus had finished saying these things, when he finished his sermon, he said, Amen, okay, we're done. 
The crowds, the what? The crowds, the multitude of people, not just disciples, but everyone who was listening, they were amazed at his teaching because he taught one who had, as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So in his early stage of ministry, Jesus had already gone viral. And everybody knew, most everyone knew, there was something very special about him. And so again, no matter who you are or where you're from, this message or this sermon is for you. Not my sermon, his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. All right, verse 3. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Jesus starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word blessed, repeated nine times in this short little passage, is so much more than just a physical or spiritual blessing, what we typically call a blessing. It literally means supreme or genuine happiness. Supreme or genuine happiness. An emotion that goes far beyond being in a good mood or having a smile on your face or experiencing some level of joy because something good has come your way. The blessing. The divine and genuine happiness that Jesus is talking about here can only come from having a clear conscience, knowing that you're in right standing with God and that you are participating in kingdom of heaven living, which is so much different than what we're used to. And at the very top of the beatitude list, Jesus makes the statement, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed or genuinely happy are those who understand the power of humility. That's exactly what that statement means. Poor in spirit meant to shrink back or to humble yourself. And to be poor in spirit is to recognize our utter dependency before the Lord. That apart from Him and His grace, we have nothing of value or nothing of worth to offer our God. Here Jesus is saying, regardless of your position or stature in life, the kingdom of heaven is marked by spiritual dependency and spiritual need. Something that we're not real crazy about. We like to be self-sufficient. We like to do things on our own, get the job done ourselves. Poor in spirit means we are depending upon God. In the opening words of this sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, must have hit the Pharisees and the religious leaders right between the eyes because they were steeped in arrogance and self-importance, the exact opposite of what it means to be poor in spirit. And they paraded on the street corners and in the marketplaces, making sure they told everybody how special they were and how much better they were than everyone else. And they always had to have the best seats wherever they went. They always had to be first in line. They prayed long prayers, read their resumes publicly, and just drew attention to themselves. And do you remember what Jesus said regarding the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders? Do you remember what he said about them? Don't be like that. Jesus said, I appeal to you, I beg before you. Do not engage in that kind of arrogance and pride. In Isaiah chapter 62, uh, pardon me, 66 and verse 2, God said, these are the ones I look on with favor. 
those who are humble and contrite in spirit. In Psalm 51, 17, David models this for us. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And so with the Sermon on the Mount, the very first statement Jesus made is a critical one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who understand apart from God, we have nothing to offer because in the kingdom of God, there's no place for pride. All right, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. The idea here is to mourn or grieve or to lament our sin. To actually feel bad about our sin. Please note, Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who say, I'm sorry. Or those who acknowledge they have a few issues that they need to deal with. Jesus said, there is a tremendous special blessing that comes to those who mourn. In other words, check this out, happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. Doesn't make much sense to us, does it? Because the kingdom of God is so much different than our culture. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from our sin and results in salvation. That's what repentance is supposed to do. Lead us away from sin. And we display godly sorrow when we mourn and grieve and lament our sin. Spiritual mourning leads to repentance and change. And that's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2, Solomon said, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Given the two, I like feasting. And there's a time for feasting and fine dining, for celebration and for laughter and having a good time. But there's also a time for fasting and lamentation. The scripture says that's healthy for our souls. And we can find healing in that place and transformation and change. We don't have to continue to live with the same shortcomings and the same weaknesses. Because when we take the time to literally grieve when we sin and miss the mark, that is what's going to lead us to repentance. And Isaiah 61, verses 2 and 3, says Jesus came with that very mission to comfort all those who mourn and provide for those who grieve to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy, and a garment of praise. We sang all about that this morning. This is what Jesus came to do. On the other side of mourning and grieving and acknowledging our sins are these wonderful blessings that he provides for us. He came to comfort us. All right, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And then Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word meek means gentle and yielding. And please understand, meekness is not weakness. Some people think that. Not even close. In the kingdom of God, again, different than our world, oftentimes meekness translates to strength. And when Jesus was talking like this, the people in the crowd who had the most trouble with this concept were the zealots because they practiced violence. And they believed in taking things by force. They were married to the sword. And the zealots would soon learn their lesson the hard way. 
In Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that one day as Jesus was leaving the temple in Jerusalem, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. As far as the eye could see, beautiful buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every single one will be thrown down or torn down. And sure enough, following a zealot-led rebellion against Rome, in AD 70, Emperor Titus marched on Jerusalem and he burned it to the ground. This is in our history books. An estimated one million Jews were butchered and slaughtered to death. Thousands and hundreds of thousands more were tortured and enslaved. And that's why in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, Jesus says, I beg of you, Learn from me. Follow my example, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All right, verse 6. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The hunger that Jesus is talking about here is a do-or-die hunger something that most of us are not very familiar with. Uh, we have a hard time understanding uh, this concept because our idea of, of hunger is going two or three hours without food or drink, and then we can DoorDash or Uber eat some food right to our front door uh, whenever we want to. In John chapter 4, Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, and he said, whoever drinks from the living water that I provide, whoever makes that living water a top priority will never thirst again. Jesus said everything else that you come in contact with, the best that this world has to offer, will never really satisfy you. Our greatest desire, our greatest hunger has to be for his righteousness and his holiness. To acknowledge how great he is and how much he's trying to emulate that in our own lives. In fact, his greatest, God's greatest desire is that for us to be made in his image and likeness. How many of you know that? More than anything else, he wants these principles, these attitudes to reign in us. And so he works a lifetime to get us to thirst after his living water and to drink the water that he's serving. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. How many of you would agree that God has been merciful to you? Just raise your hand if you feel like God has been merciful to you. That instead of punishment and judgment, he has extended to us his merciful grace. My hand is way up, friend, and yours should be too. <laughs> Psalm 103 and verse 10 says, God does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. He does, however, reveal to us or show us his love and his mercy. Just about everything we receive from God comes with mercy. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, plural, never come to an end. They, the mercies of God, are new every morning. Every single day, God is serving up fresh mercies for breakfast. Every day. 
regardless of what happened the day before or what happened last week, there is a buffet of mercy every single day for us. And here Jesus gives us a spiritual formula, a kingdom principle. Those who show mercy will find ongoing mercy. And again, he was calling out the religious leaders with this particular beatitude because the scribes and the Pharisees, they did not have a merciful bone in their body. Immediately they reacted with condemnation to anyone who made a mistake, any violation of the law, and they were right there. And Jesus told them, I want you to go and learn what this means. Go, go practice this. Go find out what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. God's mercy trumps just about everything else we can get our hands on. Friend, he is a merciful God. And he said, when we receive mercy, that mercy in our hearts should compel us to show mercy as well. And then in verse 8, Jesus continued, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, David wrote, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He that has, or she that has, clean hands and a pure heart. Here we go back to the heart again. Not just clean hands, but both clean hands and a pure heart. Again, the Pharisees, they went through a rigorous and comprehensive ceremonial process to cleanse their hands and to make the outside of the cup appear clean. But Jesus basically said to them, you're missing the mark because God is after the heart. God is concerned about the heart. And even though we please him and he loves when we practice morality and virtue, he is mainly interested in what's taking place right here. The scripture says, out of the heart, everything else flows. Everything comes from the heart. And check it out. With a pure heart, the hands should be relatively clean. All right, verse 9. We're almost there. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Jesus is assigned four names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. The scripture reveals Jesus as someone who walked in the peace of God. And during the final Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, when he instituted the communion supper, he said to them, this gift of peace I'm going to leave with you, this gift of peace I'm going to give you. It's not like the kind of peace you'll find in the world, and everybody wants peace. He says, I've got a gift that will help you to become a peacemaker. Because when you have this gift that comes from me, when you have this peace and this rest in your heart, then you will be in position to continue along the same lines and express that peace to the people around you. James chapter 3 and verse 18 says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And in the kingdom of God, the best way to make things right, right with God, right with yourself, right with the people around you, is with an attitude of peace. 
And so we should desire not to add conflict, but to try and eliminate it whenever we can. All right, let's finish up here, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because of you, but because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, Jesus is making it very clear that his followers, his disciples, the people that are locking into his teachings, they're going to be different from everyone else. There is going to be a marked and clear distinction between the people of God and the people of the world. And I think it was probably around 25 or 30 years ago when the church came up with this brilliant idea that if we look more like the world and talked more like the world, thought more like the world, behaved and acted more like the world, then maybe the world would embrace the church a little bit better. And maybe they would listen to what we had to say and they would, and they would not reject the message that we have. Jesus was basically saying here, probably not going to happen. Religious persecution is here to stay. It always has been. It always will be. The scripture says they hated Jesus without a cause. They persecuted him. And if they hated Jesus, they're not going to like us very much. Now, I'm not suggesting we add to the disdain or disagreements, that we don't heap on additional reasons for people to hate us or persecute us, but to deal with the fact that we're not going to be liked all the time. Jesus said, when this happens, because of your faith in me, because of your uh, devotion to me, great is your reward in heaven. And when Jesus finished these Beatitudes... Right, this is just the opening segment of his sermon, just a, a short little time into the sermon. He's got these great crowds of people following him. They're all listening to what he had to say. And when he finished sharing these nine Beatitudes that I just talked to you about, I can only imagine what some of the people in the crowd must have been thinking, especially the zealots. Like, are you kidding me? This guy just gathered the largest audience that has ever met together for a religious event. And there was so much expectation and so much hope. All he had to do was capitalize on the energy in the room and fire us up. If he would have just given us our marching orders, we would have immediately left this place and turn on the Romans in a heartbeat. Doesn't he know how much we're willing to die for the cause of Christianity? Doesn't he understand that we, are gonna, we would lay down our lives for the cause right now? Yeah, Jesus understood that. In fact, with these Beatitudes, that's precisely what he was asking them to do, to lay it all down. The problem was they didn't understand the cause. Again, the cause was wrong. They had a misinterpretation of what God had in mind. And I'm wondering, 
as we bring this message to a close this morning, if even today, as you listen to these nine instructions from Jesus and the different attitude that he is asking us to live by, what he's communicating to us in these nine Beatitudes, I'm wondering if maybe you're asking a few questions. Like, does Jesus actually expect me to acknowledge my utter dependence and reliance on him? Yes. Is he really asking me to walk around with a spirit of humility, to mourn and grieve over my sins and my mistakes? Yes. Does he think I can turn from all of what this world has to offer, the prestige, the fame, and the fortune, and focus my attention on doing what's right? Yes. Am I supposed to be meek and mild and merciful and readily turn the other cheek, especially when people treat me unfairly? Yes. And this whole issue of guarding my heart and attempting to become a peacemaker, does Jesus think that this is even possible in our culture today? Yes, he does. Does Jesus expect me to forgive those who offend me, accept those who mock me, act friendly toward those who falsely accuse me, reach out to those who insult me, actually put a smile on my face in their presence and be happy? Yes, yes, yes. This is what Jesus is expecting from us. Because these nine Beatitudes are the cause of Christ. This is the message, the ageless, timeless message that he's communicating to us today. Just as valid, just as significant and influential as it was 2,000 years ago when he preached it. Because I think sometimes the church has the wrong idea of what God wants from us. In the same way that those expecting the Messiah to appear had kind of got their wires crossed a little bit and Jesus was attempting to figure it all out and to teach them the right way. I think the church has got this idea that is much different than the cause of Christ. And we've got to get this right. Friends, we've got to get this right. We can't just read over these nine instructions that Jesus gives to us about how to act and how to think and how to behave and just say, well, that's nice because that, they needed that back then. We, the church, need it today. We have to have it. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we take just a couple of moments this morning. We reflect on what you just said to us in these few verses of Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to be able to remember them all. But you said there's a blessing, there's a genuine happiness, there's a fulfillment, there's a satisfaction, there's a spiritual fulfilling that comes to us when we're poor in spirit and when we mourn and when we're meek and merciful and when we hunger after righteousness 
and when we're pure in heart and when we become peacemakers and when we understand, Lord, that serving you is going to bring some persecution our way. And yet, we are going to follow the example that you gave to us because you're asking the church to make some adjustments today so that we could be a powerful force in our world. Lord, there were zealots in the crowd that day. And all you had to do was say, go. And they would have done everything they could to wipe out that Roman army. But you taught them there was a different way. They didn't understand it at the time. They wanted to carry a sword, but you said no. And I pray, God, that something would happen in our hearts in these days as the Spirit of the Lord is ministering to us. You haven't called us to a place of forcefulness or arrogance or thinking we're better than everyone else. You haven't called us to a place of demanding to be first or reading our resumes in front of everyone or showing how great we are in our own strength. You're asking us to be fully dependent upon you and understand that when we're poor in spirit, that marks a difference in the kingdom of heaven. I pray, Lord God, that we would hear clearly the message of the Holy Spirit today. And we wouldn't just roll over the top of it, but we would allow it to go deep down in our hearts. Do these things for us, Lord, individually and collectively. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.